Hey guys, it's Emma and Shannon. And welcome back to our podcast, She's an Engineer. In this episode, we are going to talk about tunnel building. So we'll go through a very brief history of tunnels, also talk about why tunnels are built, and a few different methods on how to build tunnels underground and underwater. So I guess we'll start off and Emma's going to talk about a little bit of the history behind tunnel building. Yes, so one of the first known examples of underwater tunnels was actually built between 2180 and 2160 BCE, which was a very, very long time ago, by the Babylonians. And the purpose of this tunnel was to divert the Euphrates River. It was a 3,000-foot brick-lined and arch-supported tunnel, and it measured 12 feet high by 15 feet wide. And um, it also provided a pedestrian and chariot passage between the royal palace and the temple. Back then, and in the earlier years, um, tunnels were employed mainly by miners and medieval sappers, whose purpose was to dig underneath the castle walls to collapse them, which, as you can imagine, is like kind of a dangerous task. Um, And really, what we know now as, like, underwater tunnels and, like, the Lincoln Tunnel or, like, the Holland Tunnel between New Jersey and New York City, that has really come into effect in the past 200 years. And we'll get to, like, how those are built later on in the episode. And currently, the longest road tunnel is 24.5 kilometers, which is called the Lairdal Tunnel, um, linking Ourland and Lairdal, and provides a ferry-free connection between Oslo and Bergen. Yep. So that connects Oslo, Sweden, and Bergen, Norway. Right. Yes. Next, let's discuss a little bit about why are tunnels built. Um, And then I'll let Shannon go into like how they're actually built as like our civil engineer of this like little duo. I feel like she definitely has more information and understands more about, you know, building and constructing than I do. Okay, so usually tunnels are built because congested bridges reach their choking capacity. So, like, they don't have any more capacity to, like, accommodate traffic or traffic just gets too bad. And generally, like, there are other problems with bridges that lead people to want to construct tunnels because bridges can interfere with shipping traffic. They can also take up valuable riverfront property, and they can also block some scenic views. Except I really do think that some bridges are, like, the scenic view. Like, the Brooklyn Bridge. We really enjoy the Brooklyn Bridge. Or, like, the Golden Gate Bridge. So... Yes, and also bridges are potential like safety concerns because they can make easy airstrike targets and they can also be hazardous if they collapse. So the benefit of tunnels is actually to withstand tides, currents, and storms, and they definitely do that better than bridges, um, and they can reach longer distances than bridges do, and they also have an almost unlimited weight-carrying capacity. Um, Aside from that, the 
it is definitely more like cost effective in terms of like tunnels versus bridges like tunnels cost per length drops when it gets longer in comparison with bridges bridges cost per length is more when a bridge gets longer and although tunnels have a higher like initial cost initial construction costs than bridges they also have lower maintenance costs than bridges so like over a longer period of time tunnels will be less costly than a bridge will be yes and then there are still problems that's not to say like tunnels are like perfect and they don't have like problems um there are still like lots of problems with the safety and security with tunnels like fires and accidents can pose like dire threats Um, Which is also why, like, in, like, railroad tunnels, there are crossover passages where the trains can switch tracks. And there are also service tunnels that can serve as emergency escape routes. So I could imagine that, like, a tunnel collapse would be, like, really terrible, like, really deadly. Um, And, I mean, so can a bridge collapse, though. So. And then do we want to go on to how are tunnels built? Yes. So as early as 1818, a French engineer named Marc Brunel invented a device that allowed workers to tunnel under rivers without worrying about water and mud ruining their work. Brunel's invention um, was nicknamed the Tunnel Shield, and it was a big rectangular iron wall with lots of small shutters on it. So how it worked was workers would open the shutters one at a time and dig a few inches of dirt out, After a bit of progress was made, the whole shield would be pushed forward, and as the shield advanced a few inches at a time, workers would build a thick brick wall behind it so that it would become the shell. And as you might think, moving inch by inch, this was very time-consuming work. The tunnel shield was used to build the Thames Tunnel, which is beneath the Thames River in London, connecting Rotherheath and Wapping. It took workers nine years, so from 1825 to 1843, to build the tunnel. And in the end, it measured 35 feet wide by 20 feet high, and it was 1,300 feet long. And on average, it was running a depth of about 70 feet below the river surface. And this tunnel became the first underwater tunnel in the world, and it's still in use today. Since the Thames Tunnel was built, technology has advanced quite a bit. And in 1845, a tunnel boring machine, TBM, or sometimes called moles, were invented. And these tunnel boring machines cost millions of dollars, but they are able to create long tunnels in a very short amount of time. The tunnel boring machine consists of an engine attached to a large wheel, also called a cutting head. And the cutting head has discs that spin very rapidly and slice through long sections of rock and earth. The cutting head um, inches forward and the tunnel slowly cutting through all of the rock And as the machine cuts through the earth, the debris is deposited into a conveyor screen and conveyor belt and expels it from the tunnel. Some boring machines even have an erector that is attached to the back of the cutting head, which can lift and install pre-made concrete lining to the tunnel to support the tunnel. So essentially, as you're removing rock from the tunnel, the machine can also build a wall as you're going. Oh, that's convenient. 
Yeah, and it takes out a lot of the the manual labor from the tunnel shield method. Right. And the boring machine was first used to make tunnels underneath mountain ranges such as the Alps and the Hoosack Mountains in Massachusetts, but it later was used to make the Merced Tunnel in 1925. And boring machines are still used today, although they might not be the most commonly used tunnel method. France and England used 11 massive tunnel boring machines to create the three tubes that make up the 32-mile-long channel tunnel, also called the Ural Tunnel or Channel. These tunnels now connect the two countries under the English Channel. Interesting. Yes. And moving on to the most modern tunnel method, and although all of the earliest underwater tunnels were bored hole tunnels, in the early 1900s, another method connecting land through underwater was invented. Immersed tube channels were invented in the early 1900s by W.J. Wilgus. And Wilkes was an American engineer who tested his invention while working on the Michigan Central Railway Tunnel, which connected Detroit, Michigan and Windsor, Ontario via the Detroit River. In 1906, Wilkes began work on the first immersed tube tunnel. And these tunnels were made with prefabricated segments that were eventually submerged and connected underwater. So I'm going to take you through the five major steps of how immersed tube tunnels are constructed. And the first step is to build the tunnel segments. So specifically for the Michigan Central Railway Tunnel, these segments were constructed with concrete, but they can also be made from steel or a combination of steel and concrete. So all of the necessary components are, all, are then pre-installed into the tubes. And depending on the tunnel's function, Paved asphalt roads, rail lines, or utility machinery can be placed into each segment while still on land. So all this is occurring while the sections are still on land. And once the segments are made, a boat called an immersion pontoon drags them out into the water. And once they reach the right spot, each tube is sunk to the bottom and nestled in pre-dug trenches lined with gravel. Divers connect the tubes using rubber gaskets and steel plates, and this, this part of the construction is very crucial since the rubber will allow the tubing to bend and shift without breaking during an earthquake or a natural disaster, which is pretty interesting. What you mentioned before is tunnels can last a little bit, I guess, have more resistant to earthquakes and natural disasters than bridges, which is why tunnels might be a better alternative. And once all the tubes are lined up and connected, an artificial floor is placed above them to protect them from water and damage. And often this floor is made of a layer of stone and gravel and is usually 5 feet or 1.5 meters thick. So overall, that's pretty much the process of the immersion tube tunnels. And the Michigan Central Railway Tunnel, which was which was constructed using that method, still stands today, and more than 400,000 trains pass through it every year. Because immersion tube tunnels take less time and labor than board hole tunnels, they are the most commonly produced type of underwater tunnels today. 
That's very cool. I can imagine, like, it must take a lot of space. Like, wherever they're constructing these immersion tubes must be, like, giant. Yes, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, so now that we've talked a little about tunnel construction, something that's, like, a little bit related because it's also underwater um, is also submarine cables. So actually submarine cables are kind of like underwater internet cables that have come about in also the past like 200 years or so. Um, right now they're fiber optic cables that are laid into the ocean and connects two or more landing points and they connect countries across the world via these cables and are able to transmit like large amounts of data rapidly from one point to another. And they generally last like are around like thousands of miles in length. So they're they're really huge. So what are they constructed of, right? So normally, if you can imagine like the width of a garden hose, that's like generally the width of a submarine cable, which is like kind of small actually. Um, yeah, and they generally comprise of optical fibers that carry the information covered in silicon gel, and then it's like sheathed in different layers of plastic, steel wiring, copper, and nylon to provide insulation to protect the signal and also protect the cable from damage from like wildlife, anchors, fishing, weather, other events like that. Then the cables are actually like laid onto the ocean floor using ships that are modified specifically for this purpose. And they slowly lay this like wet plant infrastructure onto the seabed. Um, and they carry like thousands of kilometers of this optical cable like out to sea. And they use a special subsea plow that's also used to trough and bury submarine cables along the seabed. Um, closer to shorelines where like other activities like anchoring or fishing um, are most prevalent and could potentially like damage these submarine cables. And today there are actually more than 400 subsea cables in operations. Um, some connect nearby islands so they're like pretty short like around 50 miles and some are over 10,000 miles in length because they're traversing like a huge body of water and some connect single points across a body of water and some have multiple landing points connecting multiple countries. And each continent has these submarine cables like connected to them except Antarctica. Um, Antarctica is the only continent that has not yet been reached by a submarine telecommunications cable, but they are considering putting one there to improve connectivity for researchers that are in Antarctica. So in terms of who owns these cables, right? So traditionally they're owned by telecom carriers who would form a consortium of all parties interested in using the cables, and then in the late 1990s, lots of entrepreneurial companies built lots of private cables and then sold this capacity off to like private users. But now these still exist, but one of the biggest changes in the past few years is actually the type of co companies that are involved in building these cables, like 
Google, Facebook, Microsoft, Amazon are major investors. So the amount of capacity for these cables that were deployed by these providers has outpaced the actual like internet backbone operators in recent years. Because they have huge like massive bandwidth growth, um, owning these new submarine cables actually makes sense for these companies rather than using like pre-existing infrastructure. And who uses these submarine cables? So you or I use these submarine cables. So like private companies use these, telecom carriers, mobile operators, governments, research into institutions, like everyone in the world basically rely on these submarine cables to send data around the world. And in the end, basically anyone accessing the internet, regardless of the type of device they're using has the potential to use these. So now let's talk a little bit about like where they're actually placed. So I said earlier that they're placed on the ocean floor. They actually do go all the way down to the ocean floor, but like near to the shore, these are actually buried under the seabed for protection, which kind of explains why you don't see them when you go to the beach. But in the deep sea where like rarely anyone is going, right, they're laid directly on the ocean floor. So they're not like buried underneath the seabed. And they also use like lots of planning. So whoever is placing these cables down uses a lot of planning to follow the safest path because obviously if you're all the way down on the seabed, you want to avoid fault zones to prevent, you know, earthquakes, uh, fishing zones, anchoring areas, and like other dangers, like not only for the people in the area, but also for, for the companies who are placing these submarine cables down they don't want to have to keep replacing them because Mm -hmm. they're getting damaged by you know fishermen or um, ships and things like that so they also try to educate other marine industries on the location of the cables so that they can avoid damage to their cables that's really interesting i'm still trying to wrap my head around how long these cables need to be if they're sitting on the ocean floor, which is so deep. That's crazy. I know. Honestly, like, I expected them to be, like, dropped by, like, like divers or something, like, placing them on the ground floor. But now I'm realizing that that's probably not that reasonable. But now I'm imagining, like, you know, like a, a garden hose where, like, you can, like, roll it up and then, yes. like, can, like, unroll it. I, I'm yeah. just, like, imagining a huge thing of that on like a ship and they're just like unrolling this cable that's exactly what i I was imagining too because that's the only way to transport that long of a cable i know but now i'm like thinking about it the more i think about it i'm like wait they do do a lot of planning to ensure that it's placed in the right location Mm -hmm. i'm sure there's like ways that they do it but if you're, like, unrolling something, like, I can imagine there could be, like, potential errors in the placement of your cable. Mm-hmm. Also, I, I just looked up the design life because I was curious. And for submarine cables, they're engineered with a minimum design life of 25 years. But that doesn't seem too long. They would have to replace them more frequently than I was thinking. Yeah, they do replace them quite frequently. And... They break a lot. They're over, 
I see online that there's like over a hundred cable faults like each year. Oh wow. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a lot. Um, but the good thing about these cables is that a lot of these companies follow this like safety and numbers approach. So mm-hmm. they're able to spread their network's capacity over multiple cables so that if one breaks, their network can like run smoothly over the other cables while service is being restored on the on the damaged one. Interesting. Do you know if they're able to easily locate where the damage is, if they can like pinpoint latitude and longitude of that point? So normally they can get like a rough estimate for where the break is because they're found by like internet and phone outages or like power outages. And Mm -hmm. because they're like fiber optic cables, they can normally a light pulse that's sent through the cable would normally go all the way to the other side but if it's broken it gets bounced back and with that information engineers can measure the time it takes for the pulse to return to find the specific location of the break on the cable oh that's interesting cool yeah yeah and then they sent this like remotely operated vehicle with fault detection instruments so they can find the damage and then once that's located a cable ship is dispatched to repair the cable Mm -hmm. so sometimes it's a little bit more complicated especially if it's like a different type of damage like if it's like an anchor damage then Mm -hmm. it's probably like easier to see and also easier to fix because it's probably like in one place there's just like one area where it's it's broken and then it can be like spliced back together but if it's like broken by natural events then it can break the cable in multiple places and can cause problems in like an entire region and i imagine like that would be like much more difficult to fix well, it sounds like overall these submarine cables along with tunnels are really built to last. And I think that brings us to the end of our episode. Are there any last things that you wanted to say, Emma? Not really, only that we will be continuing this series into how bridges are built as well. So keep an eye out out for that for the future. Um, and also let us know if you have any other like things that you're interested in hearing about, like how is this built or like what is this design process like? Yes. Yes. Well, I think that's all for today. So we'll see you guys again in two weeks. Bye. Bye.